Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Elaine's mission? End the silence, stigma, and shame about suicide, ideation, and mental health. Sharing your burden can lighten your load. Elaine says we must normalize the conversation to make it easier for you to voice your pain and be able to ask for help. Reaching out to another human being when you're in need of a listening ear must become the norm. Please note, the Suicide Zen Forgiveness podcast is for education only. Some of this subject matter could be triggering. For those of you that are either grieving or having mental health problems, please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. And now, here's your host, Elaine Lindsay. My guest, Anne Moss Rogers, is a mental health and suicide education expert, professional speaker, trainer, and consultant. In 2015, her then 20-year-old son, Charles, died by suicide. Anne Moss chronicled her family's tragedy in a newspaper article that went viral and her blog, Emotionally Naked, has reached millions. She is the author of the award-winning memoir, Diary of a Broken Mind, and the bestseller, Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk with co-writer Dr. Kimberly O'Brien. Anne Moss has been a TEDx speaker. She was featured in the New York Times Variety Magazine, and she was the first non-clinician invited to speak on youth suicide at the National Institute of Mental Health, a UNC Chapel Hill alumna. Anne Moss currently lives in Richmond, Virginia. Her surviving son is a filmmaker in LA. Hello, and once again, it's very exciting for me to bring you a guest I heard a lot about before I got to meet. So please welcome Anne Moss Rogers. Thank you for having me, Elaine. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I very much appreciate that. Uh, there, are, there are a number of places we could start. And there are quite a few things that you have gone through. But like most things, I prefer conversation to questioning. So I'm going to have you, if you don't mind, start wherever you'd like. And I would like to acknowledge first off, that's a lovely picture of Charles you have behind you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think I've usually started where I'm going to start now, but I am for this podcast. I remember that I had been through a whole lot in my life. Now, you know, I was born in a middle-class family, loving parents. I didn't have a ton of trauma or anything like that. Not that they were perfect, but my parents loved me and that not everybody has that. So when I was 15 years old, I broke my neck and had, it was a catastrophic accident. And I was in the hospital for two weeks and wore a neck brace for nine months, but I was lucky by about one hair 
because had it been like one millimeter more, I would have been paralyzed from the neck down. God. And recovery was difficult because I was a teenager wearing a neck brace, mm -hmm. I was in a new school, all that stuff that went Ooh. with it. Three years later, I would be attacked at knife point at the J.C. Haunted House in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I barely escaped rape and murder. And I was oh sexually God. assaulted, but fortunately not how we would define rape. But I do remember how the police officers treated me on the scene. And that was like, I had caused this and I was lying to them and I had a fight with my boyfriend. Well, I didn't back down. I went home and I told my father, I told the principal of my school. And the next day, the chief of police was at my house and I showed him where it happened. So I walked right back into the space where I had been attacked, showed him the blanket, my earring, my dollar bill, everything I said was there that they said they couldn't find. <laughs> so I really fought back uh, and I'm like, I'm not taking this. I was attacked and I will not be belittled over this. And it would be a couple of years after that I was struck by lightning. I'm not sure where. I did it strike near my feet, but I was thrown in the air and I was scrambled for about two weeks after that. And the wow. only witnesses I had were a cabin full of seven-year-olds. <laughs> wow. Right. And then I would find out I had a brain tumor in 1999 when my then three-year-old, Charles Aubrey Rogers, said, Mom, your tongue is crooked. And an MRI would reveal that I had a brain tumor on one of my cranial nerves, and that's called a skull-based brain tumor. So for decades, back and forth, I thought that it was not cancerous, but it was definitely life-threatening and I do have a number of deficits as a result. For whatever reason, I've, I've had enough, and that's my insurance policy going forward, is that nothing else really that bad is going to happen to me. And then my son started struggling with depression and anxiety around, I'd say, 2010. It became really obvious there were signs before then. And in the years between 2010 and 2015, around the end of that time, he would become addicted to heroin. Oh. And he killed himself in 2015. And I thought we invested all this work. We loved him so much. How did this happen? How this doesn't happen to people like me. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. I loved him. And how could this happen to somebody who loved their child? Didn't he know that? But I thought at first he had done this to me. <laughs> and yeah. it just took me a little reflection to come back around to go, this is something else. And it, I needed to understand the why behind suicide as best I could understand yeah. it from the standpoint of a person who has never once 
had thoughts of suicide, which, by the way, is extremely rare, I find yes, out. Yes, it is. And I remember after he died that I didn't want to get up, but I didn't want to die and I didn't want to kill myself. So there's a difference between Absolutely. the two of us. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who lose someone they love, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a friend or a child, we often feel that way. And, but there is that difference when you start feeling, I really want to end my life. And I never got there, but I think we also need to understand that Parents, especially who've lost a child to any cause of death, often want to take their life because life is so unbearable when you are living with having lost a child. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. My, my heart goes out to you. And you are so right in that is quite unusual that you didn't go to the extreme. I, I live with suicidal ideation and have since I was a child. So for me, suicide is the third option constantly on the table. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, whether I burn the toast or crash the car, one of the options is always I could just end it, which it's hard for me to, I hear what you're saying, I understand the words. It's a weird dream to not have these thoughts. So uh, that's incredible. And, and in a way, it, it was a gift, but also it would be more pain for you in losing Charles and knowing yeah. that every day. I think that yeah. I think all those previous experiences that I outlined earlier yeah. and the fact that I did have, like I said, an imperfect but loving family, yeah. that gave me the underpinnings of being able to develop the resilience. I'm also not predisposed to thinking that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's big part of it. And yeah. whatever that brain anomaly is that makes you think that on a chronic basis, it just doesn't exist in my head. Although here's what I'll say about that. I think there could be circumstances under which I could find myself if I got traumatic brain injury or yeah. terrorists kidnap me. I don't know what yeah. it would be, but I don't think of myself as immune. I just think of myself as being predisposed to not having it. Yeah. And because I fought back after those earlier yeah. Instances. And I had a lot of things happen within those, each one of those sort of crisis points in my life that really opened my eyes and helped me again build that resilience that yeah. really yeah. Usher, ushered me through my whole grief process. But I tell you what, I started building 
my toolbox right after it happened. And I already had a pretty good toolbox of of coping skills. And I was bound and determined that if I wasn't here speaking, then who would be carrying forward my son's legacy? He let other people know that they mattered. That is so important, that connection piece, so important in grief, suicide prevention, in mental health, in substance misuse. That's the one thing that is a constant over all those realms, because as human beings, we need that. Yeah. And I've always said, based on, I've lost a lot of people on the periphery in different areas. It turns out that my father's sister, we're not quite sure, but we believe that she may have taken her life because of the situation. They're across the ocean, so we were not close. I was seven, so back then in the 60s, you didn't talk about it, much less research it or do anything else. But I have always believed, based on my, uh, I didn't even know the word ideation until about three years ago. I just thought I was weird. And that was just part of me. But the more I've investigated everything, the more I've come to understand that for the most part, people who take their own life are not wanting to die. They want an end to their pain. Whether it's emotional, mental, or physical, that's what they want. Yeah, and And that's what I've found too. Yeah. And and when I so when I talk to young people, they're frightened with the thoughts. Now sometimes they'll have one thought their whole life and they'll come close or they'll attempt and it never happens again. And there are people like you that starting at the age of eight, they have suicidal ideation their whole life, and then they get to a certain age and they're just I am worn out by this. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of wearing the mask and it is just exhausting. And I don't have the perfect answer to that, but it really is about being there for one another. And for those who have those chronic thoughts to also understand how to have that friendship so that it isn't, doesn't feel lopsided to the other yeah. person because that's what makes that other person run away. <laughs> yeah. And I found that my my father was diagnosed with dementia last December. And oh, it sorry. was thank you. It was only a few months before that he had he got off Facebook. And this year I was able to tell my truth because I did not think it was right for me to put out there about the ideation and devastate my father. He's the only one I have left. And right, it has made a world of difference. And this is why I'm on this mission to end the silence, the stigma, and the shame surrounding suicide, loss, ideation, and of course, mental health. Because I find that once you put a name to it, once you 
put your story out there, you lighten the burden somewhat. And it is not my first thought in the morning anymore. It's not, it doesn't overtake everything else that's happening anymore because I've, it's no longer one of those secrets. So this is how I explain what you just explained when I speak to either parents or, and mostly young adults and teens is it's like a balloon. And if you never talk about it, then it starts to blow up in your mind like a balloon and take up a lot of brain real estate. And then you start to ruminate and then it becomes all you can think about. Once you talk about it, it's like all the air goes out of that balloon. And then there's this sense of relief because you put it out there. And when you share that, it's like you're sharing that burden among a lot of people. And I think that conversation has a lot of value. And I remember when my son died, all of a sudden people came over to my house. They knew that's a Southern tradition, but I was in a neighborhood with a lot of people from a lot of different places. How they knew to come over starting at 11 a.m. until 5 p.m. every single day for an entire week, my house was packed to the brim, could barely move. Yeah. I loved it. And if I needed to get away, it was okay for me to go upstairs. And I took those breaks when I needed to. But that helped me absorb all this extra emotion that I was feeling and share that pain with the other people who loved it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so grateful to have had that because I talked to other people and they're like, we were completely alone and those yeah. first two weeks were unbearable. And I'm not going to tell you the first two weeks were a picnic, but I can tell you, I don't know how I would have gotten through that first week without all those lovely people bringing food, coming by, giving me hugs. All my first cousins drove from wherever they lived. And if they weren't able to go to the service, they at least came by. And I remember having a conversation with my cousin Nimux, and he had lost his son to a drug overdose. Mm maybe two years prior. And we know it's been a little bit longer than that, I think. And anyway, we talked and it was so wonderful to make a connection with someone else who had, even though it wasn't suicide, my son st struggled with, you know, had a heroin addiction too. Yeah. And it was just so nice to have a frank conversation. And he gave me a little lay of the land of like, yeah. you will reach a certain point. He said, yeah. but I'm sitting here today. I'm crying with you now. And I just met with somebody who lost their child 25 years ago. And he started crying. He said, there's always that wounded part of you. Oh, yeah. And that was so lovely too. And I think we really don't put, invest enough in those connections with people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I, felt I, told- it, I felt abandoned afterward. Once oh, it was a memorial service and we had to move because we had sold the house four days before he died. So I had to get out of the house mm-hmm. in three weeks. I had yeah. no choice. Wow. So, and we didn't have a house to move into right away. So for 10 weeks, Ooh. we went, did Airbnb with the dog. I don't even know how that happened, but it did. And it seems like such a blur now. Yeah. And we moved in and I guess I expected people, more people to reach out. And I would call people and say, let's go out to dinner. Let's go out to lunch. And they wouldn't call me back. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, are they really just abandoning me because I lost a child? And I woke up one day and there's a DBT skill called Just the Facts. And I thought to myself, do I really think that my friends are avoiding me because I lost a child? What, what are the facts? They haven't called. They haven't returned my messages. They're busy. But that's all I really know. So I decided I was going to have a party. <laughs> yes. Who does that you know, nine months after their child? And I emailed all of them or texted them. I think I texted them. And I said, I'm having a get together of all of us. You're going to bring the food. You're going to bring the booze. I'm going to supply a place because that's all I can manage right now. And I do have somebody I can hire. And that's what I did. And wow. once they were in my place, they got the message of how I didn't want to be just left alone. Melted their fear. Yes. Yes. It was all about fear. And that's when your friends aren't reaching out. It is their fear. It's not you. It's not they don't like it. It's something going on with them and they fear. They'll tell you, oh, I fear the same, the wrong thing. I fear this. Their fear is sitting with you in their tragedy, in your tragedy. Yeah. They think that is going to bring me down. And Elena does just the opposite. Yeah. When you reach out and you sit with someone and their tragedy, nothing makes you feel better afterwards than doing that. Bring over popcorn and say, you know what? You want to talk about your loved one that died? I'm here. You want to watch stupid rom-coms and eat popcorn and drink wine? I'm all here. Whatever you want. But I just want you to know I am in your space now. And I'm willing to sit with you. And if you want to cry, if you want to be silent, I don't care. I just want you to know I'm here. Yeah, That's such an important message. And that's part of why you and I both do what we do. Yeah. Because that fear, that silence and shame and guilt about not knowing what to say or how to say it or if I should say anything. It does make people stay static. They tend to freeze because they just don't know what to do. We have never, ever been given the tools to feel the uncomfortable feelings. 
we're told to stuff them down. They say when you're a kid and you fall off your bike and hurt yourself, you go running in the house and somebody gives you a cookie. They don't want you to feel your feelings. They just want you to think of something else, be yeah. do something else. But it's funny. I've used this analogy a lot of times and not for this particular thing, but animals, when they feel fear, okay, when you're on the plains, the savannah and the zebras or the antelopes or whatever, one of them catches wind of a lion or something dangerous and they all run like hell okay and they run off and they're it's frenetic and when they stop and the danger is past you can literally watch the entire herd from tail to head goes through this weird shimmy because they're shaking off those feelings we don't do that we don't have or we have never processed all of the feelings we have. We're told to stuff them down or just get over it or go past it. Or we're never told to, you know what, just feel your feelings. Just feel yeah. the feelings. Because in actual fact, they don't last that long. But the animals then go on with their lives. They don't have therapists. They don't have to go for counseling. Because they haven't hung on to all those feelings that put them in a bad place. And I, I hate to say it, but we need to be more like the animals. Oh, most definitely. You touched on something. and I'm going to write another note here because you touched on so many things. I always say you can't heal if you can't feel. Oh, that's so good. And... Oh. Every, I get that back on index cards. So I will ask people to write down one thing they learned and they will put that on index card. Yeah. And because if you push it away and you numb it with alcohol or you decide I can't feel those feelings, what you do is you are making yourself stuck in that raw, ugly place for a lot longer yeah. than you need to be. Those feelings feel like they're going to kill you. Trust me, I know. I thought yeah. I would die. But the interesting was, thing was, once I let them in, and I would get on the floor, curl up in a ball, kick the wall, scream, can't breathe, mm -hmm. I'm furious, I'm not all the emotion. Yeah. It feels like an hour, but it is 60 to 90 seconds. That's all. And then it lifts, and you feel it lift, and you feel that relief. If you do not go distract yourself, then with a healthy coping strategy, it will refire and you will go back into that negative mm -hmm. cycle again. And not negative, but you'll refire an emotion you don't need to experience right away because you just did. You just let it in. You just experienced. And that is a building block to emotional healing. So you are allowing yourself one more step towards the healing process when you let those feelings in. Yeah. And you're lessening your suffering by acting once that feeling has lift, lifted. And this is something that we need to be teaching in school. 
all the time. Oh, I say that every student presentation is you can't heal if you can't feel and you've got to feel your feelings. And I tell them the 60 to 90 second rule. And then a lot of them believe that the feelings of anxiety will kill them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've done surveys and in one with a high school class about two weeks ago, 100% of them thought feelings of anxiety, the racing heart, the panic feelings would kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's be honest. When you're a teenager, okay, I had a zit on my chin in grade 10 <laughs> that I thought was going to kill me. And I didn't go to school for two days. And then my father found out why I didn't go to school. <laughs> and he marched me back to school. And I really did think I was going to die. I had some horrid acne monster disease that was going to end me. Because that's how teenagers think. And it's so instantaneous. It is so... They need to know their feelings are temporary, but feelings are constantly changing. And when I'm having a bad day, I'll use my coping strategies, but I also do self. I'm not going to feel like this forever, but I do feel like this right now. I'm acknowledging I feel like this right now, but tomorrow, even an hour from now, I'm not going to feel whatever indifferent or emotion that I don't like, whatever difficult emotion I'm going through yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I be very late in life because I did the avoidance thing for <laughs> decades. I finally found something that kind of worked and I would allow myself to what I call wallow. So yeah. go into those feelings and whatever and I give myself an hour and then it's okay that's done get on with whatever else you're doing but finding and researching all about feelings and learning about the 60 to 90 seconds there are some schools that'll say it can be as long as three minutes but in the overall scheme of things that's not very long no it's not and however long it was to me mine when I did time them I'm like it is about oh, that yeah. long. Yeah. But I think what happens is if it's three minutes, this is what I've seen from brain scans. So it's the whole episode might be about three minutes, but they're pe the periods of intensity yeah. are like this many seconds and then it goes down and then you have another kind of intensity because that's how suicidal ideation works for a lot of people. So it's yeah. like you're in this moment of I usually call it something but I forgot what that is now but it's that episode or trance yeah like situation and then you come out of it basically but you said something a minute ago and I, I want to kind of circle back to that and that is the wallowing and torturing yeah. yourself when we lose a loved one to suicide, what do we do? We torture ourselves. It is oh, our yeah. fault. We missed it. We could have prevented this. We could have been Superman. We could have been God. We could have, because yeah. we are in control of the actions of another, not. It doesn't matter how much logic you put in front of it. No. Nope. 
that coulda, woulda, shoulda is part of the suicide loss process. It's part of the whole losing someone. You really, everyone feels a certain degree of that. But those of us who've lost a suicide because of the intentionality piece, it is particularly sharp. So I had a process and yours reminded me that you allowed yourself an hour to wallow. Mm -hmm. That worked for you. So I would find myself just torturing myself over and over any given day. It's my fault. And I'll go over every detail in my mind of how it happened, how did I know, the last text message, the last conversation, yada, yada, yada. And finally, one day I said, I can't go down this rabbit hole, but I can't stop this process. It is part of the healing process. So what can I do? to lessen my suffering. So I made the deal. I said, okay, however long you're ruminating this. And for me, it was like three to five minutes where I would just, you're doing this, it's your fault, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, you go for it. You have at it. You torture yourself for your three to five minutes, but that's all you get today. And you can't do that again today, but tomorrow is a new day and you can torture yourself all over again. Yay. <laughs> and then I would just reduce that to like, if I was doing it five minutes to three minutes and then to every, it was every day for a while. So wherever your baseline is now, you adjust that like, you needed an hour. Maybe you would say, okay, the next time this happens, I give myself 45 minutes or I do this once a week. It's whatever kind of reduction strategy works for your personality. That one worked for mine. And you can start with that and go, mm, that's not working for me. I need to have twice a day <laughs> yeah. because it's starting to really dig at me. Yeah, I need that second time a day. And then later on, I'll reduce it to one. The first few decades didn't have the tools and there were other things going on and certainly didn't have the tools to come up with a strategy per se. But the, the wallow time, it's maybe once a month that's allowed. It's not, a, it's not an often thing and it can be when other things pile up as well. Rather than stuffing things down, which I did for so long, this this like option to do something that made sense and yes, had a time frame so that, and to be honest, I cannot tell you the last time I actually had a wallow time, not for a long time. And I think that's a good sign. A friend of mine says that once a year, she needs a whole day in bed to wallow. And that works for her and keeps her going for the entire year. So my three minute thing wouldn't work for her. Yeah. But yeah. she has found what time frame of sinking herself into it because she says, I really need to just fold inside myself. I'm not here to criticize what your time limit is. Just that you don't stay there forever. Yeah. yeah. 
because if you don't, you won't start to see the cracks of light and the beautiful things happening around you. You'll start to focus, be an animal, focusing on danger. I'm in danger all the time. Oh, absolutely. And something else that, that I think really helped in my case was beginning a gratitude practice. Yes, I am. And that's what did the crack of light for me. Uh, Somebody said, you have to write it down and you have to do three. I could barely take a shower. It was all I could do to remember one day I forgot to take off my clothes before I got in the shower. That's how bad things were. Yeah. Yeah. So I started and everything bad. My friends hate me. They don't want to see me. I started getting this negative role and it's like, stop. (laughs) This attitude has to stop. This is not going to help you. So I decided to think of one thing I was grateful for. I'm going to tell you, I did not start off well with this and that I would repeat myself a lot. But the first one was and this is embarrassing. My son was not killed by a serial killer. For whatever reason, that had been yeah. in my book of terrors. And that was the first thing I've, it was just weird stuff like that. But I kept at it. But it was a start. It was a start. And it was like, I remember just laughing at myself going, should I write that down? I'm embarrassed. What if someone <laughs> finds it? <laughs> I did okay the next day, but I'm telling you, it took me like two weeks. And then yeah. once I stuck with it, just that little crack of light would open up and I would say, oh, wow, the flowers had bloomed. And they bloomed like a week again. And I started to notice beautiful things around me. And then I decided from there to start something called the Grief Art Project. And the lovely thing was, and I would see a heart every day, or I would create one that represented how I felt that day, or a feeling in grief. And what was really neat is at the time, I didn't have a million followers, but probably tens of thousands who were also scanning their environment constantly looking for hearts everywhere. And that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. When we start looking for things to be grateful for, they're all around us. And the more you look, the more you find. Mm -hmm. And I found on days that were hard, (laughs) My father, uh, even in his dementia, has a wicked sense of humor. And he will often say when I speak to him in the morning, oh, it's a good thing I'm green side up. (laughs) Okay, Dad, that's a little morbid, but okay. (laughs) I'm not under. (laughs) Yeah, I'm on this side of the, and the green side up thing we I joke with him because my father was in the Air Force and never would have said he was green anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. No way. Oh, my gosh. That would be pointing to another branch. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's funny because 
another thing for me has always been humor. At the worst of times, there's always something funny. And, and being able to find the funny and not feel guilt about something being funny and being able to keep those things in your life can really help in difficult times. I wrote a post one time and I just wrote it up as a speaking topic, finding my laugh after loss. Yeah. Because I remember those first few times feeling guilty, but then reminding myself, Charles was the funniest, most popular kid in school. He was hilarious. He was a comic, he was a creative genius. I, Nobody could adjust his comedy like him for the audience that was in front of him. And I would literally fall off stools when he did little sketches. And the more I laughed, the more he loved it. And I kept trying to remember that. But my hearty, no-holds-barred laugh really took a sabbatical for a long time. Yeah. But the first time it came back, it was like, oh my gosh, I recognize this. And yeah. I could not stop. I just couldn't <laughs> stop. I laughed so hard. And it felt so good. Oh my gosh, it felt so good. It really does. It really makes a difference. And my, my sister died October 27th, 21. Uh, she was five years younger than me. Um, she had beaten cancer for 24 and a half years. And we're not sure what happened, brain aneurysm or something, but she fell down the stairs when she was alone at home. And uh, we had to let her go those few days later. But at the grave service, because you still couldn't have people, it was COVID, and we all brought a little something. And her grandchildren were... I think eight and 10 at the time. And standing at the grave, I brought a little red fire truck. And I could see my her granddaughter looking at me. What? And I said, I want to tell you a story. My sister, we don't know why. Nobody knows why this started. But when she looked sad or when she was angry or when she was ready to shoot me, <laughs> I would suddenly say fire truck, just like that. And her son said to the kids, oh, my God. And she just, my sister had this laugh that, that took up the space, the city where you were. Wow. She actually stopped the comedy show because the comic was, he just could not believe that someone was laughing that hard. And so that little fire truck and letters from the grandkids and everything went in the grave with the urn. And we ended up telling silly stories and laughing at the graveside. And the little gentleman from Beechwood Cemetery, he said, I have to tell you, this was beautiful. Like, you're a very small family, but having that just being together because you we couldn't we still couldn't have people with us but being together and 
savoring her memory and, and being able to, you know, give the kids things that they weren't there for. And we still do that to this day because that, for me, I think it's the most important thing we can do is keep saying our loved ones' names when we lose them, however we lose them, and pass on those stories because it's important for our families to have the stories about each and every person in the family. No yeah, matter. And that, I also think what you talked about there was the ritual too. Ritual, yeah. there's, com there's comfort in rituals. Oh yeah. There is a way of honoring your loved one with rituals. And that is a big part of the healing process. I had to develop my own new rituals. Yes. All, all from scratch. And that's what makes the grieving process so difficult is that you're creating mm -hmm. this new life and it feels like you're starting from scratch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And those rituals really help create that comfort to be able to do that. And I remember, oh, I'm also a brain tumor survivor. I told you that earlier. Yeah. And I remember creating a ritual after the second surgery that I had. And there were no more doctor's appointments. And the next one was a year. And it felt like I should really be relishing that. But instead, I was feeling lost. Like yeah. I've been dropped in a desert with no compass and I had no way to figure out my way out or which direction to go. So I created a ritual. I'm going to get up in the morning before the kids do and I'm going to work out. And if I get up late, if it's 15 minutes, 15 minutes on that stair stepper is enough. I'm going to do something. And then, you know, I kind of created a plan for the day and I thought, if I get a migraine because I was getting a lot of migraines done in the recovery yeah. process. I can check out of this, but at least I've got the sort of schedule going yeah. forward to be able to create some structure in my life. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what, how that helped and how much it helped after my son died, because after my son died, the next day, do you know what I did? I got up, I put on my running shoes, and I went running because that's what I did in the morning. People thought, she's out of the house. And I needed that oh, physical God, release yes. so badly. People would stop me. They would stop and hug me. All of that was okay. It wasn't like I was like, oh, let me see how many calories I can burn. It, you know, it's kind of like after suicide at the school i'm like don't cancel classes it doesn't no. mean you're going to do your regular math class and everybody's going to sit there and they're going to learn the chemistry lesson <laughs> but you have everyone together yeah create that comfort of having a schedule having a place to go even if you don't deliver the lesson plan as you've mm -hmm. written out for that day had this not happened yeah yeah absolutely and I think that is so important because years ago when we didn't acknowledge these things, it made life 
confusing and awkward and it's not a funny story, but after Andrea died, I was, I shifted to a new school. So over the Christmas holidays, I was starting a new school. And that was, I think it was four days after Andrea died. I went to this new school. I knew some of the people at the school, but there were none in some of my classes. And I don't know if it was that day or it was sometime that week. I was in an English class and some kid in the class made comments about the dumb girl who took her own life over a boy, which had nothing to do with anything. I don't know. I couldn't tell you to this day what his name is. I don't remember getting up from my seat. I don't remember pummeling him. I just remember Mr. Gamble hanging on to me and, and trying to talk to me and coming to no one in the class knew why I attacked this kid. I just became the weird new kid because Andrea went to a different school. I had been at a convent school that was far away from where I lived. So my group of friends didn't live near where I was. And Andrea and Colleen and Marnie all lived in this one area, but it had nothing to do with the school I transferred to, nor the, specifically the school I came from. So it was this whole weird thing that followed me through that school year because nobody knew. And I couldn't voice it. I couldn't right. tell them. Because of 1972, you just stigma. don't do that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Didn't. Yeah. And it, not even the stigma was certainly part of it. But when we were young, like, there was this protective thing going on. I, I wanted to protect Andrea. I didn't want, how dare people think badly of her. And, and I can understand that. Yeah. And didn't know how to articulate that. Because back then, you just didn't. Yeah, we want to teach our kids how to read and to write. Very important. And we've always relegated the social-emotional learning and those coping skills as being soft skills and secondary. But, yeah. hey, emotionally healthy kids perform better. Yeah. Emotionally yeah. healthy adults perform better. And whatever we can do to teach people Simple coping skills. Most people don't need medication. They just need coping yeah. skills, which is pretty much what I'm all about, whether it's grief or walking along a loved one with addiction or mental illness or yeah. Yeah. I'm all about there are ways to cope. And if you have to if you need medication to support that effort, great. But there are many things that you need to do in addition to that to so that you grow from the experience, no matter yes. how bad, no matter how traumatic it is. Absolutely. And I think if, if COVID has put a spotlight on one thing, it's the fact that we have not given children tools to, one, articulate their feelings well, to understand that it's not the end of the world. 
and having feelings is part of being human. And also interaction with others cannot be viewed as only scary. Because that seems to be where we are. The digital age broke broke down our communities of connection. And we need to figure out how to build those back within this new world. And I think we can. It's just the digital world just moves so quickly with so many changes. We haven't had time to adjust. And I see that we're doing that now. Yeah, it does make a huge difference. Back in 2011, uh, Google Plus came out. Google created a social loved Google Plus. I was a Google Plus evangelist. Really? And in February of 2012, 70 of us from as far away as South Africa, Vienna, Britain, all over the US and Canada met up in New York City for five days. It was because we had hung out in video chats for over a year. Wow. That we felt we we wanted to know these people more. We wanted to be IRL in real life and be yeah. with these people, which is the opposite of what people think the digital world does. Yeah, that I always say when the digital age moved in, that which we thought would bring us together really pushed us apart. Well, in some cases, it really didn't. It gave those of us a platform to find each other and that's the secret to taking that forward is using it as a place for that initial connection and of finding those similarities and then finding a way to connect like you all did that's a great example of taking it into the future and adapting it to the world we're in today because we're yes. not going back to the old days. No, we're not, but we are not just avatars. No, and we're more than that. We're real yeah. people. Yeah, and that's what I think we have to teach the younger generation that yes, your social life and your social online life are great parts. But we need to integrate all of the things you have the opportunities for, integrate them into your life so all of it works together. I think that's a lovely way to sum it up and talk about how we take that theory forward. I think this is a good place to end this for today. But I want to ask... Perhaps you and I could get together again and take that discussion even farther. That would be I think lovely. it's really important. I do too. I think it is a great place to dig into for sure. Just excellent. I know the audience has to be absolutely enwrapped. It has been absolutely fabulous speaking with you and Moss Rogers has been my guest today and we say goodbye to her and to Charles, her son. We have everything that you need to know and all the ways that you can reach Anne Moss and her book, etc. will be 
below the podcast on your page. Thank you once again. And in the meantime, I say to the audience as usual, make the very most of your today every day. And we'll see you again soon. Bye. Thank you for being here for another inspiring episode of Suicide Zen Forgiveness. We appreciate you tuning in. Please subscribe and download on your favorite service and check out SZF's YouTube channel or Facebook community. If you have the chance to leave a five-star rating or review, it'd be greatly appreciated. Please refer this to a friend you know who may benefit from the hope and inspiration from our guests. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by the following sponsors. Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you rocking page one in the search results. Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Kroon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. Judy has been involved for over a decade in the City Street Outreach Program in Toronto. Lisa Sugarman, Boston-based author, columnist, and crisis counselor with The Trevor Project, America's largest suicide and crisis support network for at-risk LGBTQ youth, storyteller with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, survivor of suicide loss, and mental health advocate. Lisa's purpose aligns with the lanes as Lisa shares content and sparks conversations to help end the stigma of suicide and connect people with the support and hope they deserve. Do you have a story to share? Do you know someone you think would be a great guest? Please go to SZF42.com. And for our American listeners, that's SZF42.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again.